2. Uh, we're going to be now in verses 9 through 20 um, and kind of going to be pick up. Uh, we're going to pick up today where we left off last week. And uh, the title of the message is Let's Get Down to Business. Uh, maybe it reminds you of a certain song. Um, does anyone know what song I'm thinking of? Mulan. Okay, you guys are good. You know they're remaking it, but they're not going to have the little dragon guy. They're not going to have Shane. They're, huh? It's not the same. I know. It's going to be like, you know how they're doing the whole live action thing now? But um, we're not going to get down to business today to defeat, to defeat the Hans. We're going to get down to business um, with Nehemiah and see how he gets down to business. And so uh, that's the title. You can go ahead and place that on the top of your page. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Uh, what do you guys think of Nehemiah so far? Okay, some of you guys, interesting. Some of you else, you're just silent. Um, man, Nehemiah has been a blessing just being in this book. Um, I've never studied Nehemiah uh, in depth like this. I've read it for sure. Uh, but man, there's such good uh, application here, things that we can take away. And I'm just excited for uh, even future chapters because this book, uh, though how exciting it's been in the beginning, uh, it just gets more exciting. Crazy things happen, uh, and we're going to see the start of kind of the rebuilding of the wall uh, today. So if you have not been with us, just over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how uh, Nehemiah, the cupbearer under the king of Persia, that God had put a desire and a burden on his heart to go to his hometown, to Jerusalem, and, and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city and its protection, and how he began to pray and fast over a four-month period and seek the Lord on this. And, and then as God is so good, he came through. He opened the opportunity, and last week we saw how Nehemiah was bold. We saw his amazing faith and how he acknowledged that God was in this whole thing. And uh, God just opened up these incredible doors where uh, Nehemiah is sent now by the king. He's given letters to hand anyone who gets in his way. He's handed letters from the king, if you can remember, uh, for all the materials he would ever want uh, to build a wall that Nehemiah's patience has now paid off and God is beginning to commission him. And uh, we're going to pick up here in verse 9 where uh, we left off last week where, okay, he got approved from the king and now he is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, and so and the business part of it, in a sense, uh, begins as we look at our text today. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 9 through 20. Um, and then we'll pray. Um, similar, uh, we're going to do a similar format that, that we did last week, if you were with us, where uh, we'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll kind of make the sense of it, meaning we'll go back over it, and I'll kind of hopefully be able to color it in for you guys so that all of us can see the picture a little clearer, that there's no fog, and we start to say, okay, this is what's going on. And then kind of um, at the middle of service, then we're going to get into where you're going to start taking down a lot of notes, uh, the application part, and I'll give you kind of what God would want us to draw out of it this morning. Sound good? Oh, I'm excited. Okay, look at verse 9 with me. It says this, chapter 2 of Nehemiah. You guys there? 100%? All right, word. Verse 9, it says, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Remember, those were the letters that he could pass anywhere he wanted to in the whole world. And it says, now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. He's on his way. 
Verse 10, when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. Verse 13, and I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them, of the good hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to the good work. But verse 19, but when Sanballat, the Hornonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us. They said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we are his servants. We, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. God, what an exciting text that we have before us this morning. It's amazing to think that you've given us these stories. Uh, Lord, not as just like nice bedtime stories, uh, Lord, but as... Uh, ways that we can learn, things that we can take from and apply to our very own life. God, we praise you that this story is not a made-up fairy tale, but this is a historical account of what you did through one man and many people. God, you're, you're good, and, and we want to be used by you. We want, Lord, not to get to the other side of eternity having done nothing for your name. Lord, we want to be your servants and Um, Lord, would you teach us this morning, whatever it might be that you want to speak to our hearts. Lord, would you do that personally and specifically? In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. All right. Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah is well on his way now. And as we saw in verse 9, he uses those letters right away. It says that he gets right on the other side of the river, or uh, the river that it's talking about is the river of Euphrates. And um, and it says that he uses his letters and shows the, the people, the rulers that are there and says, look, I have authority from the king of Persia, who was the world conquering power at that time. But don't miss this. Look at verse nine. The second part, it says that the king even sends him with a military escort. So that he sent him with captains and horsemen. But I think this is interesting, and I want you to make very specific notes of this, uh, that Nehemiah never asked for this. 
This was something that Nehemiah had not requested of the king. He requested a lot. He was pretty bold in his request, asking for the letters of passage and the letters for the materials and even that he would send him to Jerusalem. But notice that the king even sends him now on his way, which was an 800-mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem, about 800 miles, we would estimate, that the whole way that he has now the king's military to protect him. Pretty awesome. And then we're introduced, though, verse 10. We're introduced to two new characters of the story. Any of you know who I'm talking about? Verse 10. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's kind of a funny name. Sandballot. What if that was your name? Everyone say Sandballot. Sandballot and Tobiah. Kind of funny names. Uh, but we're introduced to these new characters, and right away we see that they're not too stoked on this news. Somehow, uh, Jer- uh, Nehemiah is not even there yet, but they hear that he's on his way. And it says that they were deeply disturbed. It means that they were like, they were upset about this. They, they were angry. And it, and it gives a reason why, though. It says that they, they couldn't believe that someone was coming with the king's authority um, that had good intentions for the children of Israel. You see, over this period of time where the children of Israel have been removed from their land, other people have kind of come and taken advantage of that empty kingdom. Uh, Samaria and different people who some were even half Jews but uh, worshipped other gods. And uh, people have kind of invaded that space now. And uh, they're not used to Jerusalem being a power. They're not used to Israel being back in the land. They like their space. They like their rule and and reign. And we see that these two, uh, we'll see not only here but later in the story of Nehemiah, but these two have some kind of power. There's some type of official we don't know exactly what their role is, but they're within the kind of official government of those kind of surrounding uh, nations. And we see verse 11 transition into Nehemiah. For the, for the whole part of the story so far, Nehemiah has been where? Starts with a P. Persia, right? He's been in Persia for chapter 1 uh, all the way to chapter 2, verse 8, or verse 10, sorry. Um, and now we see verse 11. Now it says that he is in Jerusalem. And it's kind of like this, like all of a sudden abrupt, okay, he's there. But notice it says that it, he took three months to get, uh, to get there. Um, and, what, and he was there for three days. And that this, this process uh, seemed to take about three months from getting the permission to now making his way to Jerusalem. And now he's there and probably eating some falafel and shawarma and enjoying some of the, the foods and things there. And, um, but we see that he, he gets down to business pretty quick. Um, but it's kind of secretive business at first. He's kind of under the radar. If you remember in our reading a moment ago, verse 12 through 16, Nehemiah describes that he's finally there. must have been so exciting, a place that he had no doubt dreamt of and thought of his whole life, and now he has been praying for, and now he got permission from the king. He has his military escort all the way to Jerusalem. Now he's there. Now what does he do? It says that he doesn't doesn't get right to building the wall, but it says that he begins to survey and scan the walls. It says that he grabs a few guys in the night, and when everyone is sleeping, it says that uh, he grabs uh, just one animal just to ride on, and a few close people, 
and they begin to just roam the city. Everyone else is asleep. And they just begin to roam the city and, and look at the destruction. And he's serving. He wants to see it with his own eyes. He's heard of the destruction, but now he wants to see it. How bad is it? Is, is it as bad as people have been saying? Well, he begins to survey, and you notice all these different um, gates that he talks about, says that he goes up this wall and goes through this gate, and they're just different markers for you and I to kind of see that he is moving around the entire city. But I want you to notice something. Our text states that uh, at this point, no one really knows why Nehemiah is there. That he gets there, he has a military escort, he has no doubt materials with him, but no one's really sure yet. He hasn't told them. It says that he kept these things in his heart. What God had told him to do, he kept them in his heart. He kept them to himself. And so uh, throughout this night, Nehemiah is just surveying and for these three days just kind of saying, okay, what, what is going on? He's assessing the situation. Make sense? You guys following so far? Okay. So he comes to this place where he's, he assesses the situation. He sees what's going on. And now it's time for him to kind of gather everyone up, gather everyone. Remember, this was the third return to Jerusalem now, that there were other people that had come and they kind of rebuilt the temple, uh, but they were unsuccessful in the rebuilding of the walls. And so he gathers the officials. No doubt Ezra was there. He, he gathers the priests and he has something to tell them. And we see that uh, he comes to this place that he begins to tell them uh, what they already know. He says, look, our land is, is pretty bad shape. I just looked around it myself, and he says, let's rebuild. He begins to encourage them and, and kind of lead them in this way, and he begins to share with them. He says, look, God is in this. God put this burden, this desire on my heart, and God's been opening up doors that the king of Persia has, we have permission from the world conqueror because of what God did. Look, I brought materials with me that we have this military escort and protection for now, that all these things he begins to share with them. And remember, they tried before. They tried to rebuild the walls, but they were stopped. They, they received opposition and they, they had to stop building. But if you notice, look at verse 18, that they agree. They say, all right, let's do this thing. That he kind of uplifts the spirit of the people and they become encouraged. The Bible says that their hands become strengthened. And it's not that because of Nehemiah's speech that everyone's like walking around like Hulk now and they're like, yeah, let's build this wall. Blah, blah. And like, you know, no, it's not, it's not like that. Uh, but their, their, their insights, their soul becomes encouraged. They're like, you know what? Yeah, God is behind us. God is with us. Let's, let's do this thing. Let's, let's give the protection that our city deserves. And it says that they put their hands to this good work. But then we see verse 19, towards the end of our story today, that these two guys come back on the scene, but they seem to have a friend this time. Uh, anyone know his name? Someone else. Yeah. Geshem. Geshem the Arab. Again, we don't know much about this guy, but now they brought a friend, and it says that they begin, they hear further details of the plan. Somehow word got out to them. Now, now they know specifics of, oh, this is why Nehemiah is here. He's going to rebuild the wall. And it says that they begin to laugh. They begin to ridicule and, and mock and make fun of, you guys, you guys are going to build the wall? They even say, you're going to rebel against the king? 
they begin to put thoughts in their heads in a sense of things that they're not even, not, they're not, that was not their intention. And they begin to laugh and, and scorn and make fun of and, and ridicule. They say, what is this thing that you're doing? What are you doing? Come on. Or are you going to rebel against the king? And notice Nehemiah's response, verse 20. Nehemiah responds to the threats of his new enemies, and he's, he brings God into the equation. That he assures them that this is what we're doing, whether you like it or not. And you have no place here. That you are not one of us, and you cannot stop what God is doing. He brings God into the equation. Pretty awesome, right? Now, now the ball's rolling, right? Now the story's uh, taken off. Those first couple chapters were kind of like the foundation, uh, but now we're going to see some interesting, cr- crazy things begin to happen. Happen. You guys following? We got, we're all on the same page? We see where now, end of verse 20, we're, we're all, we can see the picture a little clearer maybe. See all the puzzle pieces? Okay. Now let's look at uh, four things that we can draw out of this today. Number one, and I, if you have not been taking notes, with, which hopefully you've been listening, uh, now it's time to get your pens ready, okay? Number one, I want to look back and notice God's blessing. God's blessing. Or blessings. If you notice, and you look back at verse 9, uh, and I made mention of it at first, that military escort. Guys, it's easily overlooked, but this is amazing. Right, Nehemiah didn't specifically ask for that. He wasn't even one of his requests to the king. But I believe God's hand was on the king in such a way that God was excited even for this to be happening. He's like, you know what? I'm not only going to send you with this, but I'm going to send you all the protection you would ever need. To me, when I read this, it, it like gets me excited because we get a little insight into God's heart that he loves to bless his kids. He loves to. He absolutely loves to do it, and he loves to go over and abundant. He loves to kind of go over the top. Do you know anyone that's kind of over the top with blessings? Maybe it's like your grandma, and you're like, Grandma, it's almost like too much. Like, I don't need to eat anything else. Like, this is good, and, but I'm feeling sick almost, right? Maybe at Christmas time, you're like just feeling, you're like, I don't even know which gift to open because there's so many. Um, maybe you have someone like that in your life. Those people are the best. They're just nonstop. God even more so. God, I, I, no doubt, the more and more I, I begin to know God and through his scriptures, I think God gets excited to bless his kids. I think he does. And Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, man, the, these couple of verses are just awesome. And it's kind of, Paul is ending verse uh, chapter 3 here in Ephesians, and he just kind of says this, and he, it seems like Paul's almost just overwhelmed with the goodness of God, and he says, Now to him, speaking of God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him, to God be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It almost seems like Paul, like he was, he didn't even know what words to use. And um, the words in the Greek, uh, you know, have so much emotion that it seems the translators just were like exceedingly abundantly. Like that's not even good English, right? Um, but it's to showcase the goodness of God. That though Nehemiah 
had these thoughts and how it would be. No doubt he played what the journey would be like, those 800 miles from Persia to Jerusalem and, and played it in his mind and thought up the plan. And then God just goes exceedingly abundantly over the top. He goes overboard. And he blesses Nehemiah with his blessings and provision. Um, and notice it says, all that we ask or think. It's like Nehemiah almost couldn't even, he wouldn't even think to ask that. Yeah, God was like, oh yeah, you need this too. God's good like this, guys. But notice this verse, and you can't miss it. Sometimes uh, I just want to quote the first part, but the second part is important because it gives the context that it's all about his glory, that God loves to shower his blessings when we're, when you and I are just about giving God glory. He's just good like that. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Paul says this in regards to giving actual money to the Lord. He says, man, God's desire is to give abundance and that his, his grace would be abounding towards you. We see that word twice here, that God supplies the abundance. He just does. It's awesome. Note that verse, Philippians 4.19 this is one that you should memorize and know. It's not too long. And, it's, and it says this, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches by, uh, in glory by Christ Jesus. We see that glory there again. Guys, God is able to provide. He is able to supply. Guys, and it's according to his riches. And guess what? God ain't broke. He's not. Uh, he has all power, all control, and I think God loves doing this. And we get that little insight uh, in this verse right here. And I want you to write this down. Uh, can you go two slides over? You see, when we step into service for God, we step into the sweet spot of his blessings. And no doubt, I think God likes to bless his kids and, um, you know, maybe even one that, ones that are not um, you know, super involved in, in serving him. But what I have found, the more I just give to the Lord and more that I am just about wanting to do what God wants me to do and serving him, man, the, the, the sweet blessings of God, it's, it's just like you're in the sweet spot. That the more you serve, it's not that God's like, um, you know, God is about rewarding, no doubt. But I think that gets him excited where he's like, yes, I can, I can bless you now because you're about my glory. You're in my path and, and you're going down what I want you to do and you're involved and you're concerned about not just like Nehemiah wall building, but you're concerned about kingdom building, that you want to have influence in the kingdom of God and sharing your faith and uh, influencing others and sharing God's word and praying for others. And you're doing things that have impact I think that's the sweet spot for God's blessings. You know, I kind of see it in what I was sharing uh, even with my wife a couple days ago. It seems like this because we were just sitting in our car and just overwhelmed with God's goodness. And I love coming to those points. And it's almost like, you know, God has, um, I kind of see it as a big pitcher, okay? And the pitcher is full of his blessings. And he's kind of just, he's always pouring them down. Uh, but sometimes we're not like right under them. And we're not right under them. So we might experience God's blessings. And even, you know, even people that are non-believers, they experience God's blessing. You know that. The Bible says that he, he pours rain on the just and the unjust. That unbelievers, they have breath in their lungs, blessing from God. 
they have food in their bellies. That's because God is good. But for you and I, when we begin to devote our lives to the service of God and we're just about, God, what do you want me to do, not what I want to do? We put ourselves in the position right under to experience God's blessings. It's awesome. It is so cool. It should never be the reason for service, uh, but it is something to note for sure. And, uh, but there are two sides of the coin here that typically when you step into service and you begin to experience God's blessings, you begin to experience battles as well. That there are two sides of the coin. That's the second thing I want to look at today is the enemy's opposition. Uh, no doubt we see God's hand of blessing. Uh, but Nehemiah does something here. He kind of pokes the beast. He wakes up the enemy. Because now Nehemiah is not just praying. He's not just planning. But he begins to work. He begins to have the ball start rolling. He begins to raise up people and assess. He is now at ground zero, right? He is at Jerusalem, and the enemy hears of it now. It was one thing for Nehemiah to be praying and planning, and I think the enemy was involved, but it's almost like we see the enemy here, kind of the, the ears perk up. What was that? Where's, where's Nehemiah now? What is he doing? And note these men, these three men, um, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem would be uh, the enemies within our story. And these were local officials, remember, and they were threatened by Nehemiah's presence because Nehemiah is coming with all authority from the king to do really whatever he wants. And they know that, and they're intimidating. They're intimidated by this. And note for the, the first time, or sorry, uh, this is not gonna be the first time uh, here that we see in our story that the enemy opposed the building of the wall. Remember what I said earlier, that this is the third time someone has come and began to, to rebuild. And they've been successful little, little battles won in the past. Uh, but it's interesting to note that the same king, King Artaxerxes, the one in our story, is the same king in, Nehemiah, or in Ezra um, to stop the wall building. This, this comes from the same empire, from the same, um, from the same power that people at that time, the enemies like Sanballat, they requested the king to, to have the Jews stop and they received this opposition and they had to stop. And so now we see though that there's a change in the position that now Nehemiah comes with the authority and they are challenged by that. It says that they were deeply disturbed. You see that? Verse 10. Remember reading that? And they were deeply disturbed. It means that they were displeased. And disturbing the enemy is a very good thing. Though it comes with its challenges, uh, it's a good thing. You see, if you aren't doing anything for God's kingdom, then you're not a threat. The enemy wouldn't see you as, as something. They would see you as, well, you're, I, don't, I don't need to, to attack in any way. See, as, as hard as the enemy's attacks can be, uh, there are, it is a good sign to you and me that we're doing something right. You see, the, the reality in serving God and doing his work is it's going to ruffle feathers. It's going to disrupt the powers of darkness, and they're not going to like it. And the more that you stand for the kingdom, the more pushback you will get. And Nehemiah, no doubt, is taking a stand. 
But for you and I, in our own lives, we are to be doing kingdom rebuilding. We're to be, like what I said earlier, we're to be sharing our faith, praying for people. We are to be involved in ministry and, and reaching out to people in the name of Jesus. And Satan hates that. And he begins to attack. And he does it in a variety of ways. Uh, there's manipulation of events. There's um, putting just the right person in our life. Uh, there's those thoughts and discouragement of the enemy. Uh, and no doubt, what we'll see in a moment, there is ridicule and, and, and there is a, no doubt, one of, I think the enemy's favorite things to use is discouragement. He loves to get us down and discouraged, thinking that we can't do it. You see, if you desire to serve God, then expect pushback to the degree that you are willing to give. That if you're willing to give God, I, I just want to serve you. I want to do what you want. I want, when I get to heaven, I want to meet people that I had influence on and say, because you shared with me, because you stepped out, because of your prayers, I'm here now. And the more that you devote yourself to the ministry of what God is doing here on earth, his kingdom, then the more pushback you will get from the enemy. You see, the enemy isn't stupid though. He's not. He's very strategic. Guns and grenades, they won't work in fighting him off. It's much more difficult than that. Sometimes I wish that I just had a gun and I could just shoot sane. I would, without, without even thinking about it. It's not that easy. It's much more difficult. It's in the day-to-day -day things. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12 says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? It's not about guns and grenades, but we against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Guys, the enemy is real. And what he would want you to do as junior high students is to do nothing. He'd want you simply just to come to church and, maybe, and he would even maybe be okay with the planning and the praying part if he could just keep you there. See, the enemy wasn't too concerned when, when Nehemiah was praying and planning. He began the concern when he began doing. And maybe there's things that God has put on your heart and you know that they are there from him, that he's asked you to go and pray with this person. He's asked you to share with that family member. He's asked you to start this or that. You guys are stepping into junior high on your public school campuses. He's gonna ask you to get involved in the Christian club. And it takes boldness and it takes... And it's difficult in the midst of it. And the enemy will try to use different things and uh, discouragement. And he'll, he'll, you know, put those thoughts in your head about how you look weird. And, but it is real, guys. And the enemy would want to just, he'd want to keep you doing nothing. He wants to kick you out of the battle. But the battle is real and God has plans and purposes. And I want to encourage you guys, don't let the enemy win in your life. Think about it. Are you pleasing God more right now? Or are you pleasing Satan more? You're like, oh my gosh, that's a hard question. If, if you were to look at your life and see, okay, what impact that you have for the kingdom, is Satan worried about you? Or is God calling you? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5 says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, 
and every high thing that exalts ourself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That the weapons are not guns and grenades, but they're our lives. They're prayer and they're the word. But notice in verse 19 that they begin to ridicule them, right? We talked about how they, so they just laughed and they said, what is this you're doing? It's like, come on, you, you feeble, you small little Jews, you're just, you know, getting excited about your wall again. It's silly. They began to laugh. Uh, but someone once said that the, the weapon, that ridicule, is the weapon of those who have no other. That it's always the last resort. That Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, that they came to this point where like, we can't stop this. This guy has the authority of the king. All we can do is just ridicule. All that we can do is try to discourage that the weapon of those who have no other is ridicule. Jesus experienced that. Paul experienced that. But the, the attacks of the enemy are real. Alan Redpath, note, note it down, it says, he says this, about this passage. When we say, let us arise and build, the enemy says, let us arise and stop him. God, whether now and in the future, he's going to ask you to do certain things. You're going to feel a burden or desire, and it's going to feel extremely uncomfortable. And usually your first reaction will be, no way. And the enemy would love to come up against you and discourage you and ridicule you and your flesh as well, no doubt. The third thing I want to look at today is not just the blessings of God and the opposition of the enemy, uh, but let's take a look at Nehemiah's role in this whole thing, Nehemiah's leadership. Uh, Nehemiah's leadership uh, is pretty awesome. Uh, There's quite a few things to kind of note and see, things that I think he did right and uh, wise. We see verse 10 that Nehemiah's obvious motive was for the welfare of the people. Because notice what Sanballat and Tobiah said. They said, well, I can't believe this guy is coming uh, and he's concerned for the well-being or the welfare or the concern for the Jewish people. That this was so clear, even it got around word that Nehemiah cared about the people. And you see, in a good leader that there is no selfish motive. That if you are going to lead within God's kingdom and, and be someone who, who God is able to use in that way, uh, there can't be selfish motives. It has to be about the people, always about the people, never about self. That leadership within Christianity is not about self, but it is about others. But we see, though, Nehemiah also, he didn't just pray and plan, but now he's getting to work. And he, he understood God's timing in this whole thing. That a good leader has a good sense of God's timing. David Guzik says this, good leaders learn a sense of God's timing. And this is, this is huge. Timing is everything. That maybe God is putting something on your heart to do, but maybe it's not yet. Or maybe there's some pieces that have to fall A good leader knows God's timing. Also notice that Nehemiah uh, was awake when others were asleep. I specifically want you to write that one down. Especially you guys sleep a lot. (laughs) I sleep a lot. I should not sleep as much as I do. (laughs) Um, I hate how much I like sleep. But Nehemiah was awake when others were asleep. And he, he worked hard. 
that he got this group of guys. And uh, if you ever want to lead, you ever want to be in a position of influence and um, maybe leading over other people in, in any way, uh, you can't be lazy. Leadership is not for the lazy. And Nehemiah was anything but that. And just a few other things I want to make note about his leadership is that he told no one what God has put in his heart. You guys remember that in the story? It says that he gets there and as he's going throughout the night that he uh, begins to um, do his thing, but no one knew. He, he said that he hadn't told what God had put on his heart. And Nehemiah recognized that this burden, that this thing, that it was from God, that it wasn't something that he made up. And he wasn't just going to go blab about it, that, that he had this, in a sense, this such a personal relationship that he didn't have to have other people validate what God was calling him to do. That he was able to kind of keep this between him and the Lord, personal, what Jesus would describe as that secret place that God had prompted him to do. Philippians 2.13, it's amazing how much this verse is coming up uh, within our studies together. So if you have not memorized this one, I would encourage you, write this down, um, memorize it. It's for for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This confirms, this verse confirms that, um, the verse in, in Nehemiah, sorry, that, that talks about how God had put in his heart, it confirms that this was God. It wasn't something that Nehemiah made up. And it was that secret place. And so, but then he doesn't keep it to himself too long. He knows God's timing. And so he, he stands up and he speaks. He tells of God's hand in the whole situation, and he was humble in it, right? He could have been like uh, kind of taken and a position that God wouldn't have wanted him to. He could have been like, okay, I'm the leader now. Um, me, uh, the king gave me authority. He gave me the power, uh, and I, you should have seen me. I did that all well. I traveled here from Persia, and now I'm here, and let's do this. No, he was humble, and he gave glory to God, that he called the people to action. And he, and he told them something they already know. He told them that this place is a mess, that it's desolate, that it's, it's broken down. And sometimes the obvious thing is the hardest to see. Sometimes as a leader, that you have to share with people something that they know about their lives, but maybe they just aren't willing to step into See, he, they could have had many excuses. They could have said, well, this is a 100-year-old problem that no one's been able to come and fix the walls. They could have said, we, we tried before and we couldn't do it. But Nehemiah pursued uh, or persuaded the people in a way that they followed. That Nehemiah's leadership was in a way that people followed. And see, this was a big task but kingdom building is worth the task. They had a lot of stuff ahead of them. It was going to be a hard and difficult road. But I want you to write this verse down. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That Nehemiah took this, this opportunity that God gave him. He stepped into it. And it was worth the work. We're going to see at the end of the story, it was worth the work. And same for you and I. Life can be busy. There's lots of things, family things, school things. Guys, but the most important thing 
is kingdom building, is, is sharing, is praying, is, is seeing what God might call you to. That we are to be steadfast in that. We are to be immovable. We're always to be having eyes to see, okay, God, though I'm going to school right now, and this is my mission, or though I'm homeschooled, what is my ministry? Whatever you're doing, and this is for your entire life. You guys will no doubt get older, um, and you'll maybe go to college, or maybe go to trade school, or maybe get right into a job, and you're going to have a career and family, and whatever you might do and path you might take, that should only be to fuel your ministry. That should only be to fuel what God would want you to do. Like Paul, right? He had tent making. But he, it's not that, tent, that Paul like, loved tent making so much. He might have. But it wasn't his, his goal. His goal was bringing people closer to Jesus. And his tent making, his trade, it fueled that. And so Nehemiah, he knew he couldn't do this alone. He knew he'd have to have the support of the people. And so the last thing that I want you to note about leadership and Nehemiah's leadership is that good leaders know they can't do it by themselves. God just isn't interested in one man ministry, one man service. That often when, when God calls someone, and maybe, you know, it seems like, well, Nehemiah's kind of running the show. Yeah, but he begins to draw people in. We're going to see in chapter three that there are many people that begin to work on this. But Courage and confidence, these two things that Nehemiah had as a leader, they're contagious. Confidence is contagious. And that brings us into our fourth and final point, uh, verse 20, and Nehemiah's confidence. That not only was he a good leader, but I think one of the great aspects that we see about his leadership is in verse 20, is that there is a certain confidence about Nehemiah. And that's what people follow. I mean, imagine if we had a, a... you know, if there was a president to run and they like weren't confident, they're like, well, when I'm in office, I think I'll do this, but I'm not really sure, but, but I might, but maybe not, right? That, uh, in, uh, that leaders that are not confident, no one follows them. But Nehemiah was confident, but he wasn't confident in himself. Nehemiah didn't have self-confidence, but he had God-confidence, See, our, our culture likes to talk about self-confidence a lot and how we should just believe in ourselves. And, um, but I hope, you know, as a Christian, we shouldn't do that. We should be weary of ourselves. But it doesn't mean that we should be timid, but that we should have confidence. But instead of self-confidence, it should be God-confidence. And notice what Nehemiah says. We're going to read verse 20 again. It says, so I answered them, the opposition, and said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Notice, remember, he brings God into the equation. That He could have said, do you know who I am? Do you know that the God of this world, king of Persia, that he sent me and I have all his authority to do this? No, he didn't even talk about that. That he went higher. He said, God has sent us to do this and he will prosper us. He will be the one. He's for us and no one could be against us. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 says, if God is for us and who could be against us? Nehemiah had that mindset. Uh, it's unfortunate, but uh, within this, this verse, you see the word if right there? 
Um, there's a few different ifs in the Greek language, and this if means since. Not like whether or not, but you could literally replace that if with the word since. So since God is for us, that there's a confidence even to this verse. Since God is for us, who could be against us? And Nehemiah understood and knew this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 says this, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I love that we don't see Nehemiah just like cower away. He's not like, oh, there's opposition. Okay, I should just go back to Persia. 800 miles, that's not bad. No, he doesn't do that. He says, no, God told me to do this. God's with me. He's going to prosper me. We're his servants, and we're just going to do what he said. So whatever you want to do, enemy, you can do that. But I know what God has told us to do, and we're going to build. And you and I, as believers, man, we should have this confidence. We should have this confidence in all areas of life. Number one of our salvation, that if there's going to be one thing that you're confident in God in, it should be your salvation. It should be that, that point that, that you really did come to, whether or not you did. That if you did confess Jesus as Lord, if you did do what the gospel says to do and you responded to him in prayer and you chose to follow Jesus and ask for forgiveness of your sin, one of the things that the enemy loves to whisper in our ears and convince us of, and I think something that our flesh is weak of, is that, is that oh, you're not, you're not really one of his. Look, you messed up discouragement, ridicule, mock. But we should be confident in not only that, but even more so. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now this has to do with salvation. It does. This verse has to do with salvation, that the, that the work that God has started in us to rebuild our lives, that he will complete, and we should be confident of that fact that we are going to see him. But there's a principle here that I've shared with you before, and it's that God finishes what he starts. And so if God has called you to do something, say he's call, called you to start a Christian club at your school, or, he's, or he, he's called you to share with someone, that when God calls you to do something, he's going to see it through to the end. And we should have confidence that God is with us See, as we serve Jesus, if we have self-confidence, we won't last long. But if we have God-confidence and we have the ability to endure um, anything thrown our way, and Nehemiah certainly had that. And so uh, as we just conclude today, uh, I want to pause and just think about Jesus for a moment. You're like, Jesus? He's in the New Testament. Uh, yeah, but the Bible says that the entire book, the volume of the Bible is written about Jesus. So let's pause and think about him for a moment. And those four points, you can, can you go back to those, those four? Uh, there you go. You see, Jesus was the biggest blessing that God has ever given to humanity. That he set aside his power and his glory and Jesus stepped into humanity, not just to receive honor, but to rather to bless the entire world with salvation and forgiveness of sins. That Jesus was is the biggest blessing that God has ever given. And Jesus experienced opposition, point two, he experienced opposition from the enemy. Not only within that wilderness period before uh, the real start of his ministry, but 
Satan got personal. He went after Judas, right? And ultimately, no doubt Satan was involved in his crucifixion. Yet God has his amazing way that within the enemy's opposition to our lives, God has this amazing way of flipping it upside down on Satan's head, of doing the exact opposite, that what Satan would have intention for evil, that God says, I'm gonna use what he intended for evil and I'm gonna use it for good. And we see that with the cross, that the ultimate evil of what, what Satan attempted to do through Judas and, and through those people, that God turned it to be now the biggest blessing. Third point, Jesus also, he was a leader. He, his motive was people, not himself. His timing was perfectly aligned with God's timing. He stood up. He spoke with authority and, and courage and confidence that he knew what God had called him to do. And even when opposition came, he didn't back down. But he called and, and he, he called the disciples to himself. It was awesome. He, he was a leader. And the fourth and final thing that we see is uh, confidence, that Jesus seemed to have confidence. And uh, I've never met him personally, meaning I've never met Jesus in the flesh, right? Uh, we pray and speak and we worshiped him. But I think when Jesus was here on earth, that there is a radiance of confidence about him. And we see that when, when the people would say, wow, he taught with such authority that he had this confidence but he put himself in a position where he had to rely on God. He had to rely on the Father. In those moments before big decisions, we see Jesus slipping away and praying. That's where he got his confidence. He knew of the Father's presence and power, and he trusted his plan. And so you can hit the lights. So the question now for you today is we saw Nehemiah's story. We definitely know Jesus' story. But what about you today? Are you in the sweet spot of his blessing and service to him? Are you a threat to the enemy? Would the kingdom of darkness be worried about you? Would you disturb the enemy? What are you doing today that damages evil and builds the kingdom? You see, as Christians, to some extent, you're like, well, God's not calling me to lead, though. I'm not to be like a leader. No, to some extent, God has called all Christians to lead. We are his representatives to the world. We are his ambassadors. And so are you fulfilling what God has called you to do? And are you this morning, are you self-confident or are you God-confident? Those are questions you'll have to ask yourself in your, in your own personal time with the Lord. So God, we just come before you and we want to worship you today. God, we ask that you'd go before us as we just seek to live in your presence, to do what you've told us to do. And Lord, I pray that you, when, we, when those opportunities open like they did for Nehemiah, Lord, that we would walk through them. In Jesus' name, amen.